Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello, I'm Alice Su, the Economist senior China correspondent based in Taipei. I'm here with my co-host David Rennie, the Economist Beijing bureau chief. China is in holiday mode. It's the start of the Lunar New Year, also known as Spring Festival, the biggest day in the Chinese calendar. Hundreds of millions of Chinese travel back to their hometowns and villages to celebrate with loved ones. It's the world's largest. Human migration, and this year it packs an extra emotional charge because, with COVID controls, many passengers weren't able to get home for two years or more. 2023's Spring Festival is projected to see much more travel than last year. China's transport ministry predicts that 2.1 billion journeys will be taken from now until February 15th. I caught the train from a giant industrial city on China's south coast to its rural heartland. I asked passengers about the joys and challenges of heading home, both economic and emotional. This is Drum Tower from the Economist. David, hello! Happy Year of the Rabbit. Why, thank you. Though I've always found rabbits a bit sinister as animals go. But Happy New Year! <laughs> Tell me about Spring Festival. Is this is this kind of reviving all kinds of childhood memories? How are you about to spend the holiday? For me right now, I've just been working very hard trying to meet deadlines before Spring Festival, and the big thing for me really has been that my parents are here and we're preparing to cook together with them. Also, my dog, who I left behind in Beijing more than a year ago, has finally just arrived in Taipei. So I'm very, very excited about that. Even though he's not a human, but he's part of a family. I have seen <laughs> videos, and and uh, and he is a very cute corgi. Yes, so yes. I understand your excitement. Yes. His name is Gary, and his Chinese name is Gali. And for the first time since I left Beijing, you know, we will be together for Spring Festival. So, so I'm very excited about that. Does Gary dress up? Does he wear costumes? The Spring Festival. Well, he's only two years old, so we've only had one other Spring Festival, and that was in Beijing. And he did dress up. We got a red vest for him because red is a lucky color, and we took him to our neighbor's home downstairs, and then he promptly peed in her hallway, <laughs> and it was very embarrassing and very inappropriate for the celebration. But he looked good. He looked very festive and lucky. My cats Charlie and Ollie will not be、uh, dressing up because they would probably kill me. <laughs> But tell tell us how to understand how important Spring Festival is in Chinese culture. Yeah, sure. I mean, so Spring Festival it is this ancient holiday that dates all the way back to the Shang Dynasty. And when I was a kid, I remember reading picture books about how there's this monster named Nian, which is the year, and villagers had to get together to fend off the year monster, and that's why we set off firecrackers. So like, there's all these old traditions that date way back to ancient Chinese culture. These days, Spring Festival is really all about 
making a journey home and being together with your family. For many people, it's the only time in the year when they get together with their parents and their aunts and uncles, and they often have a big meal and then sit together and watch this show that plays on state television. It's called the Spring Festival Gala. The Spring Festival Gala on CCTV? Yes. It's a monster. Yes, the Spring Festival Gala sometimes is a bit questionable. It has all kinds of performances sometimes from many different cultures at once. But some of the songs that they perform have really become classics. There is one by a singer named Chen Hong, and it's called Visit Home Often, or Chang Hui Jia Kan Kan. Do you want to listen to it? Bring it on. When you watch a music video, you see like people going to the market, mostly kind of elderly parents. They're stocking up, they're buying all these things. They're getting a haircut, they're decorating the house and preparing for their family to come home. The refrain of the song basically is about finding time to bring your kids and go home and can can go home and spend time with your family. And that's very that's very spring festival, right? It's kind of cheesy. Uh, it's on state-run TV, but actually there is some real emotion in the middle that people can relate to. Yeah, of course there is. Although these days for young people, sometimes Spring Festival can be a little bit stressful because it is also the time when middle-class city folk in their 20s and 30s go back to their village and then their parents welcome them and have a big meal, but then also ask them all kinds of intrusive questions about their weight, about whether they found a partner yet, about how their jobs are going. There's another song that a choir in Shanghai came up with in 2017, and it's called Self-Help Guide to Spring Festival. What you're hearing is a song that is reenacting the sorts of questions your aunts and uncles and parents will ask you when you finally go home for Spring Festival. Did you find a boyfriend? Why have you gained weight? I'm going to bring you to meet a blind date tomorrow. You better lose some weight right now. Things like that. So it's quite a sarcastic song. It's kind of poking fun at the discomfort and pressure that young people feel, but it also ends on a touching note where in the end it is just about love and putting up with your family regardless of how your interaction goes. I've heard some nightmare stories from friends that you know, it's the one chance to see your family and they go home and discover there's been a blind date organized <laughs> for every day that they are in their hometown. <laughs> Uh, with people who have, you know, jobs in some fantastically boring government office, but it's mm. a solid, it's a solid public sector job. So he seems like a nice boy. That is that is an expression of love from a Chinese parent. That's what that is. But David, I know that you have been on the road this week and you've experienced the spring festival migration firsthand, and I'm very keen to hear about that. That's right. It's been one of my ambitions for a really long time to take the train with some migrant workers and COVID frustrated that. But this year I managed it. And so on January the 16th alone, that single day, 8.3 million people caught trains in China. And I was one of them. Uh, I bought a standing room ticket for the first day of a two day train journey from Guangzhou, right down near Hong Kong in the south to Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang, right up in the far west. I didn't know you went that far. Well, I only took the first day of it. Turning up as a journalist in a room to you would probably, even at Spring Festival, would be a, a dicey thing to do. That's another episode. Yes. I recorded some notes from the journey for you. Alice, it's just after six o'clock in the morning and I am in the main waiting room of Guangzhou Railway Station in the heart of this enormous southern industrial city. And all around me, you have families 
workers surrounded by luggage about to get on trains back to their home villages for spring festivals. Some of them are going to be on trains for more than 40 hours. You met a man who uh, had his duvet ready, going with two workmates, uh, who's going to be going up to Jilin, way up in the frozen north, looking forward to eating some pork dumplings that they make up in the northeast of China. He says he cannot get a decent one down in Guangzhou. They had spent $50 each on their railway tickets, but for them, this was the first chance to go back in at least two years because uh, with zero COVID rules, it was really hard for people to get home. It's very busy, but it's not crazy busy. It feels very organized, and uh, there's a lot of staff and loud hailers guiding people around. One of the things I'm going to be asking people on the train is how optimistic are they about the economy overall, their own prospects, as this country reawakens from three years of this pandemic. Wow, I really love the image of the guy in Guangzhou all the way down in southern China preparing for his journey back to Dongbei, thinking about the dumplings that he's going to eat all the way back in his hometown. And just hearing you being there, talking to those people, it really drives home for me how long the last few years have felt and how far these people go to work and how much time they spent away from their families and how monumental this moment is in that Finally, zero COVID is over. Finally, they have a chance to go back. And, and how ancient it is, that sense of separation from family as one of the greatest pains mm. that you can suffer. Remember the poem we discussed at Christmas, Alice Chunwang, mm -hmm. Spring Prospect by Du Fu. So 1500 years ago, in the middle of a civil war, talking about not just the pain of spring reawakening during a war, but also there's a line about a letter from home would be worth 10,000 pieces of gold because he's separated from his family by war. Yeah, that's right. And there are other classical Chinese poems on the same theme of separation and even of reunion in the spring around spring festival. One of our Chinese colleagues, Jie Hao, translated a poem that was written in the Sui dynasty. And it was about the same theme of separation and longing to return to your home in the spring. It's by a poet named Xue Daoheng, and it's called Ren Ri Si Gui, or Longing to Return Night and Day. So in, in Chinese, it's Ru Chun Cai Qi Ri Li Jia Yi Er Nian, Ren Gui Luo Yan Hou, Si Fa Zai Hua Qian. And what this means is, only seven days into spring, yet two years since I was last home. I can only return after the wild geese return north past spring, but my yearning for home started before the spring flowers even bloomed. Of course, Alice, those poems are beautiful, but they're sort of scholars mourning their exile. And in the 20th century, you know, this is a mass phenomenon, the largest migration on earth. And it's really linked to people moving in vast numbers from the countryside into the cities. And so that really began after the death of Chairman Mao, when he still had only about one in six Chinese in cities. Now it's a big majority of Chinese living in cities. And those cities, as you remember from Beijing, they're built and they are kept running day and night by migrant workers whose families are way home in the villages. So Spring Festival is the chance for those weakest and poorest and most vulnerable Chinese to go home. That's right. And, you know, the way that people get home is on the train, right? Typically, that's the most economical way to travel in China. So... I was looking into this and I saw that China actually started to build its railways in the late 1800s. And they were expanded as China started to industrialize in the Mao era. In fact, in 1954, the Railway Bureau planned the first spring festival migration. And that year, in the whole month of spring festival, there were 23 million 
trips on the train, which sounds like a lot. But if you compare it to now, like you said earlier, you know, this year we're expecting 2.1 billion. Spring Festival has been going for thousands of years. It's rooted in ancient Chinese culture, but actually spring migration, Chunyun, is surprisingly recent. It really only sprouted up in China after um, economic opening, after all these villagers went to work in the cities. And it was in 1980 that the People's Daily first coined the term Chunyun, to define this phenomenon. And the early days were pretty chaotic and you know, unbelievably crowded trains. I mean, I've, I rode my first Chinese train as a backpacker in the mid-1990s. Oh. And it was, pretty, it was pretty basic. It was pretty slow, certainly with a hard seat ticket. Uh, it was pretty hard to get around if you didn't speak a word of Chinese or read Chinese back then. But this week, 2023, when I was chatting with those travellers in Guangzhou Station or on my train trundling through the kind of flat fields of southern China... You know, you'd have older passengers who remembered just how unbelievably full things were 30 years ago. They would talk about, you know, back then passengers would climb through the windows uh, mm. because the trains were so full that not only were people standing in the kind of corridors and stuff, they were standing in the lavatories. Even 20 years ago, people talked about, you know, how they used to have to come on board with sacks on a sort of shoulder pole because trains were just full of boxes of fruit and cooking oil and clothes and bedding. Because if you worked in a city and you were going home to the village, that's what family expected you to bring. Mm. So Alice, for this episode, I actually spoke to someone who remembers those days of the kind of super crowded trains. Han Dongfeng is the founder and the executive director of the China Labour Bulletin. That's an NGO based in Hong Kong. And he's spent years advocating for workers' rights. And later in this episode, we'll hear more from him about a problem to do with unpaid wages that uh, has been gripping China's most vulnerable workers uh, every spring festival. But way back in the 1980s, the young Han Dongfeng was a worker on China's railways, and he remembers spending spring festivals working on packed trains. And actually, a decade before that, he recalls these really arduous New Year journeys that he made as a boy. My family came from Shanxi province, which is quite poor, mountain area. I live in Beijing with my mother. Every year, my mother sent me back to the village in Shanxi to visit my father starting from when I was 12 years old and taking overnight train to Shanxi called Yangquan. From there, I changed to a long-distance bus back to my village. On the train, you will be lucky if you have um, space to stand. On the long-distance buses, I saw it with my eyes. There were people holding on top of the bus at that time, the luggages are stored on top of the bus. It's not under. There's no space. And uh, people, they want to go home. And they hold on on top with the net that covers the luggages. So they go underneath of that net. And uh, every year I go back, I saw these things. I said, wow, that is incredible. When I grown up, I become a railway worker. There were several times before Chinese New Year, I travel on the train for work. The most extreme case was I bought a train from Shanghai, went to the city next to Urumuchi. It was three day, three nights ride. And I had literally no space to put my two foot on the ground at the same time. Finally, I couldn't hold anymore. I climbed up to the luggage rack and I laid down on the luggages and slept like a baby right away. That tells how powerful the tradition of the Chinese New Year 
is so important in people's mind is related to the humanity, which is a harvest. At the end of the year, you work very hard, you deserve what you earned, and you go home to be with your family. It's so powerful to hear from Han Dongfang and to see those images in my mind of him standing on one foot and then climbing on the luggage rack because Han Dongfang is very famous for having participated in the Tiananmen protests as a leader of the workers, you know, not only the students who protested, but he participated as someone who was advocating for workers' rights. But kind of hearing this very human portrayal of working hard and making the journey home, it really puts into context what daily life was like for workers in China at that time. In the world's most populous country, the journey home can often become a travel nightmare. And then after that, for the following few decades, things just kept getting busier and busier every year at Chunyun. There were more and more records being set on how many people were getting on those trains. The surge of the passengers is now pushing China's transportation system to their limits. The capacity of the transportation system here in China cannot meet the high demand. For every traveler, getting a ticket is now a battle they must fight. The Chinese government has been actively pushing the construction of the high-speed railway system these years. Some people say the problem is not just the supply and demand in transportation, but the imbalanced development of different regions of China. Those numbers kept growing until their peak a few years ago, and now there aren't as many migrant workers taking the trains. But this year is still a very big deal because it was the first year that people were finally able to go home and see their families after the last few years of COVID. And I'm excited to hear what it was like. So David, tell me about the journey. Well, Alice, I had wondered if people might be too squashed to talk to me, but actually uh, most people could find a perch somewhere, even if they were just sitting on a bucket uh, in a doorway or a corridor. And generally, the mood was pretty festive. Alice, we're about seven hours into the train journey now. We've crossed out of Guangdong into the province of Hunan. And there's a real holiday atmosphere. You can hear people, you know, teasing the train staff, saying, oh, it's spring festival, it's the food free train staff teasing each other about, you know, oh, you can't get down this crowded passageway because you're too fat. And it is really crowded. There are a lot of people, particularly in the last cars where we are, where if you don't have reserved seat, which we don't, you have to try and find somewhere to perch. Uh, you can bring a camp stool, you can sit in your luggage, or there are some people just standing in the corridor. And given that this train runs for more than 40 hours, that's not something you want to do for too long. There is discussion. You can overhear people talking about the economy. We overheard a businessman talking about how the next 10 years are going to be pretty hard in China. But generally, people are in holiday mood, and everyone we spoke to has been paid their wages. They do different jobs, a lot of factory jobs. Uh, some people uh, who clean the streets because they got too old to work in a factory. And they were saying that the really dangerous sector to be in is construction. That's the one where you can really risk not being paid before Spring Festival. It's great to hear that there was a festive mood on the train. David, what were you sitting on? I'm just curious. So I was with a Chinese colleague who is a absolute master at Taobao online shopping and had bought two pretty snazzy camp stools. <laughs> and then the truth is that uh, then the, the train policemen and some train conductors got quite intense um. about whether I was allowed to report on the train and moved me to a seat next to the conductor's car. Oh. Uh, but actually, that was great because people kept coming and going and sitting down next to me and I just interviewed them. Uh, I had my press badge around my neck. The, the policeman kind of glowered, but the rules are the rules. I'm allowed to interview people. And so I basically had a stream of people coming past me and sitting down for chats. What an amazing opportunity to just sit there and collect snapshots of different people's lives. That's right, Alice. I mean, any train is a kind of rolling slice of life, but to ride a New Year 
train, a slow train in China. It was just this fantastic opportunity to kind of see for myself how there are winners and losers in Xi Jinping's China. And you could find both on the train. So one man who just sat down opposite me was called Mr. Drunk. Now, he's a lorry driver for a big e-commerce company, Jindong. He works right down in the south in Dongguan. And he has an extraordinary story. And he's very conscious of how amazing his story is. He was born into a farming family. And now he's a lorry driver. One of his sons is a school teacher, and the other one, who he was going to visit for Spring Festival, uh, is a university lecturer who's about to do a PhD overseas. Wow. And he was absolutely clear that his experience of China's rise as a nation had been life-changing. That was the phrase he used for his family. And he had this very paternalist view of the Communist Party. He said that they treat the people like a father would treat his child. They want everyone to be well off. And he had this very patriotic story to tell. And for him, it was all about how much work you're willing to do, kind of like you can almost make your own luck. That's so interesting. You can hear him saying how whatever work you do, whatever job you're in, you just have to work hard at it. As long as you put your heart into it, it will give you some reward. And and he talks about if you think that there's such a thing as high pay with low hours, that doesn't really exist. But in general, there is work. And if you if you really want to make it, you can. That's just very striking to me because it's it's in some ways it's very Chinese. He's not complaining about the slowing economy or the circumstances around him. He's like, if you put the effort in, you will survive and you will make it, as as he clearly did, because his family is doing well. His story of social mobility is very much kind of in tune with Xi Jinping's new era. And I think, you know, there was lots about this Spring Festival journey that shows you that the country is changing. And for some people, those winners, there's tremendous material progress. You know, it is a much more organized train journey now. The infrastructure is not chaotic. You know, the, the train staff are doing their best to help people find seats, even if they don't have kind of reserved tickets. And actually, that simple image that you see in films or documentaries uh, or articles from 20, 30 years ago about a whole country on the move, factory workers all leaving their factories on the coast of China at exactly the same time, going this great mass of humanity inland to some village, that's actually getting a bit more complicated. Lots of people have different ambitions. And so actually more and more migrants, they want to work much closer to home. They don't want to go and live in a dormitory like their parents did. It's getting hard for factory bosses on the coasts to keep people on those kind of production lines in kind of boring jobs. That's one reason why the average age of long-distance migrants is going up and up. Yeah, that's interesting. But, you know, David, I know you were speaking with Han Dongfang, who works on labor rights in China. And you mentioned, you know, there are winners, but there are also others who spend their whole lives working very hard, and yet they can't seem to climb that ladder of social mobility, right? So you're right. So, you know, Mr. Drung, and congratulations to his family. His whole idea is if you work hard, it'll all work out. But there are plenty of people who just don't have that luck. And one of the reasons that I spoke to Han Dongfang from the China Labor Bulletin, who we heard from earlier, is that his organization uh, works really hard to try and get people paid what they're owed under Chinese law. And he told me about a case they'd heard about a school being built 
way up in Xinjiang, uh, the far west where my train was ultimately going to. And they hadn't been paid at the end of the job. And so some workers decided to stay at the school and try and fight uh, for everyone to get paid properly. But in the end, the people in charge of the construction site cut the electricity and temperatures were minus 20 uh, centigrade. So they had to leave uh, without being paid. And Han Dongfang estimates that this year, like so many years, there could be maybe 10, 20 million migrant workers who've not been paid their full wages. And that's not just a tragedy for them. Their entire families were depending on those wages just to live. The families are back there like little birds and waiting for food and someone out there carrying food back. And if they don't come back with enough money and they will have uh, difficulties not only over the new year, but then after new year, children's school fees. In China, there's no free of charge school. The aging population problem, their parents if there's any sickness and now you have COVID, it's not really covered, the treatment. So all these expenses all depends on them. That's really striking because on the one hand, spring festival and spring migration is this moment of joy, but it's also a moment of great pressure for so many people. You said that Han Dongfang and his organization have been working on this for years. How do they try to improve the situation for workers in China? Well, look, this is a failure of politics and governance. National leaders, Chinese leaders, they denounce this problem every year. We have campaigns. So we just had another campaign where the state council said local governments in particular must pay what they owe before Spring Festival. Han Dongfang's NGO is really interesting. They try to work with the system. There is one trade union in China, the All China Trade Union Federation. And so Han Dongfang's group tries to press them to do their job and to represent their members. But the truth is that the trade union exists to deliver smooth labor relations for the Communist Party. It is not really there as the workers' friend. And if that's a political failure, let's not forget this is also a human tragedy. You have people with nothing to show for a year of hard labor and all that time away from their families. Can you imagine every year you paint a beautiful painting, at the end of it you have ink thrown on, destroyed everything. That is what Chinese migrant workers live through this tradition repeatedly every year. Beautiful tradition, family, gathering, love, harvest, and then frustration. The question is, why these burdens are all paid by these workers and uh, their families? China is supposed to be a socialist country, and the workers should be served first. Based on what they claim, this is not something that should happen. That irony is just so frustrating, you know, that this is supposed to be a country that serves the workers first, but that it's it's not happening. But, you know, the story of spring migration is not just about the journey home. It's also about what happens once you get there. That's what we'll be talking about next. But first, if you want to read more about the spring migration in David's column or any of our other reporting on China, including a really great article this week about how China's population is now shrinking for the first time since the 1960s, you should subscribe to The Economist. We have a special introductory offer for our listeners, which you will find at economist.com slash drum offer. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Drum Tower. This week, David is riding a slow train across China. He's getting a close-up look at what has become the biggest human migration on Earth. Alice, we're just pulling into Changsha Station. It's been nine and a half hours since we left Guangzhou. And it's been a real privilege to spend time with a whole bunch of people traveling, in some cases, 40 hours to get home to the farthest corners of China in Xinjiang. And you can see that this is an extremely intense experience for some of them. They, you know, they haven't seen their families for two or three years because of the pandemic. And in some ways, it's become less materialistic because compared to 20 years ago, where the great cliche was that migrant workers would carry, you know, food and clothes and everything for the big city, a lot of people said that the internet actually provides everything you need now, even in small villages. And so they're just going back to see their kids. But of course, that raises a whole bunch of emotional issues about how you see children and family members you haven't seen for so long, how intense it's going to be. Now, just listening to that note from you, I can almost feel the emotional buildup on the train as people are getting close to home and thinking about, I'm finally going to see my kids or I'm finally going to see my parents. I'm finally going to see them after all these years of separation. I think also that's something that a lot of us can relate to. People are amazingly open about their personal lives. Now, they don't want to talk at all about politics uh, or anything to do with the Communist Party, but it is amazing how people tell you their salaries. They'll tell you that their son can't get married because he can't afford to buy an apartment. And there were these really amazing family dynamics on this train. So this was one of the old-fashioned slow like the green-skinned trains. So it's chugging its way slowly across China. This train had very crowded hard seat carriages, but also some hard sleeper carriages. One of the compartments, I found this little girl, five years old, practicing this really sweet, uh, somewhat sickly sweet thank you song for her elder relatives. She's going all the way from nearly on the border with Hong Kong up to the city of Hani, famous across China for its sweet melons and grapes. So I think my favourite conversation was with three guys from the central province of Hernan. They actually uh, live in the same shared dormitory room. The oldest of them was asleep and he has a job as a security guard. He's now too old to work on a building site. And it turns out that the burly guy next to him, uh, also Mr. Xing, who's 40, he's his son and he's a supervisor on a factory production line. And we got talking about kind of family dynamics being separated from family because, you know, I'm separated from my family working here in China. And with this parents' discussion. And he was telling me about the really complicated dynamics that he has two kids, a son of 10, daughter of 16, doesn't know his son basically at all. He knows his daughter better because while she was still at primary school, she could go to school in the same city, Guangzhou, where he works. But as you know, Alice, one of the cruelties of China is that if you have uh, rural identity papers, you can't go to middle school or high school easily in the big city where your parents work. And so she went back 
to the home province, and he doesn't see her very much. So we talked about exactly how intense it was going to be as he tried to make time to see his daughter, though, as he said, you know, this sort of sad phrase about, you know, we're busy trying to earn a living, she's busy trying to get the grades. Oh, that's so sad. You can just hear this guy saying how, as parents, you, you always want to spend more time with your kids. But he actually wasn't planning to go back this year because he was so busy. But then the kids kept calling them and saying, oh, we haven't seen you for a whole year. Why don't you just come back, spend some time with us and hang out and we'll feel better. And then he has this moment where he says being a parent that's always out there wandering floating, you have this feeling towards the kids. He just says, I don't know how to describe that feeling. It's a feeling I can't put into words. There were some incredible moments like that. And some of the most powerful, I think, were kind of intergenerational. One of the other really extraordinary encounters was there were two women, both from the province of Hunan, a poor province in the south, where I was going to get off the train. And they were basically a generation apart. And the older one, she's a widow, she's 56, Mrs. Lee, she was sitting on a plastic bucket by the train door. So like so many older workers, she's still out there trying to earn a living because all those years in factories, she didn't get a decent pension. She doesn't have health insurance except really bad health insurance back in the village. So she makes the equivalent of $590 a month if she works every single day as a street sweeper. And when the COVID quarantines meant that she couldn't work in Guangzhou, she was meant to be paid by law, but her boss didn't pay her because he's a subcontractor for the government. And she was incredibly open she was sitting next to a younger woman, a generation younger than her, whose kids are home in the village, and she's left them in the village because she works in an electronics factory for 12-hour shifts, so she just doesn't have time to raise her own kids. And these two women, a generation apart, one 30-something, one 50-something, had this incredible conversation about the economic pressures, uh, about how if you're a boy, you have to buy a house or an apartment and a car if you want to have a hope of getting married. If you don't, then someone's just going to walk off on you, even if they do marry you. And Mrs. Lee, the older woman, the street sweeper, she had this fantastic way of sort of phrasing things. She goes, you know, there's only so much money going around unless you're going to rob a bank. And they had this kind of conversation about how the younger woman has two sons and how lucky that was. Or maybe it wasn't because there's the pressure on them to get married. And then Mrs. Lee talked about how she couldn't have two sons because back in the 90s when she was having her children, the family planning laws were so strict that she was allowed to try for a second child because her first was a daughter. And so in the villages, you were allowed to try for a son, but not too quickly. And because she had a baby, she got pregnant too soon. She basically more or less hinted that she'd been forced to have an abortion. And the younger woman just went, that's outrageous. And, you know, Mrs. Lee, the widow goes, you wouldn't know the half of it. Back in the 90s, it was chaos. And then we thought about the fact that the government is now trying to pay people to have more babies. But her own son can't get married because he doesn't have the money for an apartment. <laughs> so you can hear that. She's saying nowadays people don't want to have kids. There's so much pressure on them. They don't want to get married. They don't want to have kids. And it's all about this. What is that ideology again? She says, oh, yeah, liberalism. <laughs> you know, what, what are you going to do about it?
we could have a whole separate debate about whether that is because of liberalism or not, that people don't want to have kids. But it's clear from what these women are saying, the reason why a lot of young people these days don't want to have children is because of the economic pressures. Alice, you know, one of the really poignant things about doing this story has been the way that when you start researching, the jobs that people do may be changing. Some of the specific pressures may be evolving. But the fundamental kind of human story of migration from a village to an urban job is one of trying to juggle sort of impossible economic pressures with trying to be a good parent. Is it enough just to earn money and send it back to your village to feed kids? One of the ways that people try and make sense of this is to say, well, if my children can use that money to get a good education and a better life, then I will have done the right thing, even if I was missing from their entire childhoods. And way back in 2009, there was this brilliant documentary called Last Train Home made by Fan Li Xin. He's a Chinese-Canadian director. I watched that as preparation for going on the train. And lots of the things are out of date, but some of it is just still so incredibly similar to what I heard on my train. You have this family, the Zhangs, and the wife left her baby when the baby was one month old to go to the city. There's this really tough bit where she says, lots of my relatives said, don't go, but I hardened my heart and I knew I had to go. So the husband and wife work in this factory sewing, actually often blue jeans. They finally get tickets to go home and they have this unbelievably awkward family dinner where these children who basically don't know their own parents. Uh, it's just so sad because you can see that the mom and dad have so many emotions and feelings, things they want to say to their kids, but they just don't know how to say them. And the father even repeats that line that you heard on the train. He's like, you know, I have things to say, but I, I don't know how to say it. Um, and instead, all they can say is, we want you to study hard. We want you to succeed. We want you to place higher in your class. And it's it's just really sad because you can see that the kids, um, to them, they just see it as, okay, these two people are home, they're our parents, and, and they're putting so much pressure on us. But really, you know, there's all this sacrifice and love behind it. I think one of the things that's really tragic and powerful about this documentary is the way that it makes clear that this is a kind of poisoned inheritance that is passed down from the generations because the parents feel that the thing that has destroyed their lives is that they don't have any education. So that's why they're obsessed with their children getting this education that they never got and avoiding the life that they had. But they don't get any thanks for it because they don't know how to express that in any way that's kind of supportive. And so there's these awful interviews with the teenage daughter saying that her parents have done nothing for her ever when we've seen them kind of working themselves to exhaustion. And then she comes up with the perfect form of revenge, which is that she drops out of school and goes to the same city that they're in and joins the same kind of clothes factory that they're in. So it's like destroying all their hopes. And the very end of the film is the, the husband and wife discussing whether they're going to try and invest one last hope in the son, the younger brother. And maybe the wife needs to go home and be there if that's what it takes to keep him at school. So you see people just so conscious of this cycle that they're trapped in. And Everything that they suffer for is about trying to help the next generation get out of that cycle. 
again, this isn't everyone in China. I mean, you met people on the train who who succeeded, right, and climbed out and got their kids out of the cycle onto the next rung of the ladder. But there are also so many others who are repeating it over and over again. And I think what's striking is that in recent years, there are all these slang terms that have become popular even among middle class urban young people about this feeling of being trapped in a cycle, working harder and harder, but things not getting better. There's this term, nadrian or involution, and that's that concept of you're putting in more work, but you're getting more and more tired. One of the things that's amazingly rich about kind of Chinese public discourse, even kind of online discourse, is it's not just people talk about sort of neidran, but also, you know, for a decade now, you've talked about people being like jiuzai, like garlic chives, because you can harvest them and cut them and they grow back again and again. And the great sinologist Jeremy Barmay recently spotted that a really bleak term from the 1980s is now making a comeback, which is renkuang, which is literally like a human mine, like a coal mine, but for humans, uh, because people are like hue minerals, a natural resource that the party just wants to quarry. That is just such a grim metaphor, and it really captures this feeling that I, I got all the time when I was reporting in China, talking to people who felt powerless and exploited. But to me also, the, the magic of reporting on the ground was that you got to capture these stories and hear these voices where even though these people are in a system that treats them like chives or minerals or you know numbers or machines, um, when you meet them face to face, you realize there's something really relatable. Obviously, they're humans just like you and me. And it's important to be fair that by its own terms, the Communist Party is achieving successes. You know, it talks about collective progress and material prosperity and trains that run on time and are less crowded. On those counts, the journey I took was a lot less chaotic, a lot better organized uh, than journeys of 20, 30 years ago. And I'm sure a ton of people on that train, they'll take that. But I think what you can also see is that when you do start talking to people about the pressures they face and the way that that means that they're just not going to try and have a family or that they feel kind of trapped in these dead-end jobs, even though they're well past the retirement age, what I took away from my train journey, Alice, is that gleaming infrastructure is impressive. And we should definitely give China the credit for that. But building a fair, happy, flourishing human society is a much harder task. And like so many other countries, China has a long way to go. Thank you so much to everyone who has sent us comments and questions. We're reading all of them, and we would love to hear more from our listeners. So if you have anything you want to tell us, please email us at drum at economist.com. Thank you for listening to Drumta. We'll be back next week. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barkley Bram produced this episode. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim, and music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.